Section 9 of A Commentary on the Epistle to the Romans by John Calvin, translated by Francis Sibson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Romans 6, verses 1 to 23. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? What shall we say then? The Apostle, in the whole of this chapter, enters into a discussion for the purpose of showing that Christ is, in a false and perverse manner, divided and torn in pieces by those who imagine our Redeemer has conferred upon us a gratuitous justification without imparting newness of life. Nay, he even goes farther than this, and adduces it as an objection that an opportunity seems to be then offered for the workings of divine grace when men lie fixed and overwhelmed in sin for we know with what readiness the flesh seizes every pretext for indulging its own propensities and with how much facility satan contrives all kinds of calumnies by which he may slander the doctrines of grace we ought not to be astonished if whenever the doctrine of justification is preached the flesh dashes itself as it were against various rocks since every truth proclaimed concerning christ appears altogether paradoxical to the judgment of the natural man the follower of christ must however proceed onward in his course nor is the messiah to be suppressed because he is to many a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence for as on the one hand he may prove to be the ruin of the wicked he will on the other be the resurrection from the dead to the pious we must however always answer unreasonable and foolish questions that no absurdity may appear to be connected with the doctrine of christ the apostle now therefore examines the most common objections against preaching the doctrine of divine grace namely if it is true that the grace of god is conferred upon us more liberally and abundantly according to the greater load and weight of sin by which we are overwhelmed nothing can be more profitable to us than to provoke the indignation of god by being plunged in the very abyss of sin and the frequent perpetration of new offences for we shall then finally experience a more copious supply of his grace which is the greatest blessing we can desire the manner of answering this objection will be afterwards considered god forbid some commentators consider that the object of the apostle was to reprove in a very strong manner the foolish madness of this objection but other passages prove this answer to be frequently used by the apostle even in the midst of a close discussion as he here also with very great care soon after repels the calumny adduced against the doctrine of grace he shows in the first place thus forcibly his detestation of the objection for the purpose of proving to his readers that nothing is more absurd than to support and nourish our vices by the grace of christ which is the most powerful means for restoring our own righteousness we who are dead to sin he argues from the contrary for he who sins must undoubtedly live to sin we are dead to sin by the grace of christ therefore the position is false that grace gives vigour to sin which it abolishes for the truth is that believers are never reconciled to god without the gift of regeneration nay we are justified for this very end and design that we may afterwards worship god in purity of life nor does christ in any other manner wash us by his blood and render god propitious to us by his expiation and atonement than while he makes us partakers of his own spirit which renews us into a holy life it would therefore be the most preposterous inversion of the work of god if sin should acquire strength by means of that grace which is offered to us in christ we might with as much truth 
consider medicine to be the fermenter of that disease which it destroys we ought also constantly to keep in mind what i lately touched upon that paul is not here considering in what state god finds us when he calls us to be partakers of the fellowship of his son but points out what characters we ought to be when in pity he has gratuitously adopted us the apostle by using the adverb of the future time points out the change which ought to follow justification know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into jesus christ were baptized into his death therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the father even so we also should walk in newness of life are you ignorant the apostle proves that christ destroys sin in his people from the effect of baptism by which we are initiated into the faith of the messiah for we without controversy put on christ in baptism and are baptized on this condition that we may be one with him paul thus assumes another principle that we then truly grow into the body of christ when his death produces its own fruit in us who believe paul thus assumes another principle that we then truly grow into the body of christ when his death produces its own fruit in us who believe nay he teaches us that this fellowship of his death is chiefly to be regarded in baptism for washing alone is not proposed in this initiatory ordinance but mortification and the death of the old man whence the efficacy of christ's death shows itself from the moment we are received into his grace the effect which this fellowship with the death of christ can produce immediately follows therefore we are buried with him he now begins to show what is meant by being baptized into the death of christ though he does not yet give a full explanation namely that being dead to ourselves we may become new men for he justly makes us pass from the fellowship of the death of christ to the partaking of his life since these two are indissolubly united together the abolishing of the old man by the death of christ that his resurrection may renew our righteousness and make us new creatures and since christ was certainly given us for life what advantage do we gain by dying with him if we do not rise again to a better life our mortal part therefore dies for no other cause than that christ may truly restore us to life we ought likewise to know that we are not in this passage merely exhorted by the apostle to imitate christ as if he had said all christians ought to take christ's death for an example to follow and imitate for he certainly aims at something higher than this and deduces from it the following doctrine on which he will afterwards ground his exhortation the doctrine is that the death of christ is able to extinguish and overthrow the wickedness of our flesh and his resurrection to raise us to the newness of a better nature and we are chosen by baptism to become partakers of this grace the apostle having laid this foundation can very properly exhort christians to use every effort to walk in a manner corresponding with their calling the circumstance of this virtue not appearing in all who are baptized makes no difference for paul in his usual manner when addressing believers joins the substance and the effect with the external sign for we know whatever the lord offers by his visible symbol is ratified and confirmed by their faith he shows us summarily what is the true import of baptism when properly received thus galatians three twenty seven he testifies that all the galatians who have been baptized into christ had put on christ such language must indeed always be used as long as the institution of baptism by the lord and the faith of believers correspond for the symbols of christ are never empty and vain unless the power and efficacy of the divine kindness are prevented by our ingratitude and wickedness by the glory of the father the remarkable virtue by which he declared himself to be truly glorious and displayed as it were the magnificent splendour of his glory 
Thus the power of God which exerted itself in the resurrection of Christ is often distinguished by some striking testimony, nor is it done without reason, for it is of very great importance, by so express a relation of the incomparable power of God, not only to exalt in a magnificent manner the faith which we entertain of the last resurrection, very much surpassing the sense and judgment of our fleshly nature, but to raise also in our esteem the fruits and advantages which we derive from the resurrection of Christ. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For if we have been planted. The apostle confirms his former argument by using language still more intelligible, for the comparison he adopts removes all ambiguity, since the engrafting not only signifies our conformity to the example of Christ, but our secret union by which we grow into one body with him, so that, making us flourish by his own spirit, his power is transferred into our character. As the branch, therefore, has the common condition of life and death with the tree into which it is engrafted, so there is sufficient reason why we should become equally partakers of the life and death of Christ, for if we are engrafted into the likeness of Christ's death, which is never separated from his resurrection, neither can our death to sin take place unless united with our spiritual resurrection. The words in this passage may be either referred simply to the likeness of Christ or to the likeness of his death, but since the sense is the same in both cases, any remarks on the difference of expression are of little consequence. Chrysostom understood the likeness of death to mean only death, as the likeness of man, Philippians 2.7, signifies merely man. The expression, however, in my opinion, conveys a much more forcible signification than our simply dying a natural death, as Christ did. And it implies the following agreement of our death with his, that as Christ died in the flesh, which he had received from us, so we die in ourselves for the purpose of living in our Saviour, our death, therefore, is not the same with that of Christ, but similar to it, for we must always keep our attention directed to the analogy between the death of the present life and our spiritual renewing. Planted. The meaning of this word is very emphatic, and clearly proves that the Apostle is rather teaching us concerning the benefit we derive from Christ than simply exhorting us to duty, for he does not require us to perform anything which our zeal and industry can accomplish, but he proclaims the ingrafting of God. We must not labour to make the metaphor or comparison to agree in all its parts, for in the engrafting of trees the branch derives its support from the root, but the fruit retains its own natural quality and taste. But in spiritual engrafting we not only derive the juice and vigour of our life from Christ, but remove from our own nature into his. The apostle distinctly points to the efficacy of Christ's death which exerts itself in the destruction of our flesh. The power of the resurrection of Jesus is displayed by renewing in us the better nature of his spirit. That our old man. Man is called old, as the Old Testament is with respect to the new, for he begins to be old when his nature is gradually abolished by the influence of regeneration after it has commenced. The apostle means our whole nature, which we bring from the womb, and it is so far from being able to receive the kingdom of God that it must necessarily perish in the same proportion as we are renewed into the true life of holiness. He says, this old man is fixed to the cross of Christ because it is destroyed by his power, and he particularly alludes to the cross, that he might prove in a more express manner our mortification of sin to arise from no other cause than our partaking of his death. 
for I do not agree with those commentators who consider in their expositions the word crucified to be used by the apostle rather than dead, because sin yet lives and in some measure flourishes in our nature. This opinion is indeed true, but little suited to the present passage. The body of sin afterwards mentioned by Paul does not mean flesh and bones, but the entire mass, for man, when left to his own proper nature, is a mass made up of sin. The expression that we should henceforth not serve sin points to the design of the crucifixion of Christ, namely the abolition of sin. Hence it follows, as a necessary consequence, that while we are the sons of Adam and continue mere men, we are so completely under the bondage of sin as to be able to do nothing else than offend God. When, however, we are engrafted into Christ, we are freed from this wretched necessity, not by our immediately ceasing from the entire commission of sin, but from our becoming finally conquerors in the combat. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him for in that he died he died unto sin once but in that he liveth he liveth unto god likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin but alive unto god through jesus christ our lord for he that is dead the argument is derived from the quality or effect of death for if death destroys all the actions of life we who are dead to sin ought to cease from those actions of sin which it exercised over us during the continuance of its life the word justified means being absolved and restored from slavery for as the culprit acquitted by the sentence of the judge is freed from the bond of accusation so death by releasing us from the present life delivers us from all the duties it enjoins although such an example indeed is nowhere to be found among men yet we must not regard the statement of the apostle to be an empty speculation nor ought we to yield to despondency because we do not find ourselves among the number of those who have entirely crucified the flesh. For this work of God is not perfected on the first day when it commences its operations in us, but gradually increases, and making daily advancement is brought by little and little to its completion. To sum up all, if you are a Christian you must exhibit in yourself a sign of your communion with the death of Christ, and, as a fruit of this, your flesh will be crucified with all its desires." You must not, however, conclude that you have made no progress in this communion if you find the remains of sin still continuing to live in you, but you must never cease to meditate on the best plans for increasing your participation of Christ's death until you have reached the goal. It is well with the believer, if his flesh is continually mortified and he has made great progress when the Holy Spirit has taken possession of the kingdom which has been acquired from the flesh. There is another participation of the death of Christ mentioned frequently by the Apostle, as well in other passages, but particularly in the Second Corinthians 4, namely the bearing of the cross, which is followed by our becoming partakers of eternal life. Now, if we be dead. He repeats this with no other design but to subjoin the following declaration, that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more and he intends to teach us by this passage the necessity imposed upon Christians of their pursuing this newness of life during the whole of their mortal career. For, if they ought to represent in themselves the image of Christ, both by the mortification of the flesh and the life of the spirit, the former must necessarily take place once and forever, and the duration of the latter can never terminate. 
not as we have already observed because our flesh can die in us in one moment but no liberty is allowed for our going back in this mortification since if we again return to our wallowing in the mire we deny christ for we can only become partakers of him by newness of life as he now enjoys a state of incorruptible existence death has no more dominion over him the apostle seems to hint that death had once enjoyed dominion over christ and when he indeed gave himself up to death for us he submitted and subjected himself in some measure to its power yet on this condition that he could not possibly be held bound by its pains yield to its authority or be consumed by it by undergoing its power therefore for a moment he devoured death for ever though to speak more simply the dominion of death is referred to the voluntary condition of christ's death which was terminated by his resurrection in fine christ who now gives life to believers by his spirit or inspires into them from heaven his own life by a secret virtue was exempted from the dominion of death when he rose from the dead to rescue his followers from the same he died unto sin once the apostle adduces our perpetual deliverance from the yoke of death by the example of christ which he had already mentioned as well suited to support his opinion that we are indeed no more subject to the tyranny of sin and this truth is demonstrated by the final cause of the death of christ for he indeed died to accomplish the utter destruction of sin the very form of expression as applied to christ shows that he did not like us die to sin for the purpose of ceasing to commit it but he died as a ransom for sin thus annihilating its power and authority the apostle says that christ died unto sin once not only because he sanctified believers for ever by the eternal redemption which he procured by his one oblation and by his cleansing of sin accomplished by the shedding of his blood but for the purpose of establishing a mutual resemblance between us and our redeemer for notwithstanding spiritual death makes continual progress in believers yet we are properly said to die once since christ not only reconciles us to the father by his own blood but regenerates us also at the same time by the power of his spirit hebrews ten fourteen but in that he liveth the sense is not changed whether the passage is translated unto god or in god for it means to live in the immortal and incorruptible kingdom of god a life subject to no mortality and a likeness of this ought to manifest itself in the regeneration of the pious we must always keep in mind the proper meaning of the word likeness as used by paul for he does not say we shall live in heaven in the same way as christ does in that scene of happiness but he makes the new life from regeneration which we spend on earth to resemble the heavenly life of our saviour the duty of our dying to sin after the example of christ does not imply the same death with us for we die to sin when sin dies to us on the other hand christ by dying has completely destroyed sin the word believe used by the apostle when he before said that we shall also live with our redeemer shows him to be speaking of the grace of christ for had he been merely admonishing us of a duty to be performed he would have used the following language since we are dead with christ we ought in like manner to live with him the doctrine of faith founded on the promises is evidently treated of in this passage by the apostle as if he had said believers ought to fix in their minds that by the benefit of christ they are so dead according to the flesh as to have the newness of life continued to the end by the power of the same saviour the future tense we shall live does not relate to the last resurrection but simply implies the perpetual course of a new life as long as we are pilgrims in the world likewise reckon ye also yourselves 
the apostle now adapts to our case by analogy what he said concerning christ dying to sin once and living eternally to god and instructs us how we may now die by living when we truly renounce our sins but he does not omit mentioning the duty of our embracing once by faith the grace of christ for provided the mortification of the flesh has only commenced in us the life of sin will by this very means be extinguished that the newness of the spirit which is divine may continue for ever for unless christ destroyed sin in us once so as to bring it to a final termination his grace would have been defective in firmness and stability the meaning of the passage is that in consideration of your own case as christ died once for the destruction of sin so you are indeed once dead that you may cease to sin for the future nay you must daily advance in the mortification of your flesh which has been commenced until sin shall be completely extinguished as christ was raised to an incorruptible life so you are renewed by the grace of god that you may spend the whole of your life in holiness and righteousness since the power of the holy spirit by which you are renewed is eternal and will always flourish in strength and vigour i prefer the translation in christ to that of erasmus by christ because it conveys more clearly the idea of spiritual engrafting which makes us one with christ let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin but yield yourselves unto god as those who are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto god let not sin therefore reign he now commences his exhortation which naturally rises out of the doctrine delivered by the apostle concerning our communion with christ in the following manner though sin resides in us yet there is an absurdity in supposing it to be vigorous and active in the exercise of its dominion for the power of holiness ought to be much superior to it so that our life may prove that we are truly the members of christ the word body i have lately hinted is not taken in the sense of flesh skin and bones but means if i may be allowed the expression the whole mass of man the present passage supports more clearly such an interpretation for the other member of the sentence which he afterwards adds concerning the parts of the body relates also to the mind paul thus means in a gross sense the earthly man for the corruption of our nature prevents us from breathing anything worthy of our origin thus god also genesis six three while he complains of man as well as brute beasts having become flesh leaves him nothing but an earthly nature the language of our saviour john three six that which is born of the flesh is flesh conveys the same meaning it is easy to answer the objection which some may propose that the mind cannot be considered to be so earthly since in our present degenerate state our souls are so fixed to the earth and devoted to bodily gratifications that they have departed from their own natural excellence finally the nature of man is termed corporeal because having been deprived of heavenly grace it is now only a certain deceitful shadow or image this body is contemptuously denominated mortal by paul for the purpose of teaching us that the whole human nature of man is prone to death and destruction he now indeed terms sin that first depraved inclination which is seated in our minds and impels us to the commission of sin from which as a fountain all our crimes and wickedness properly flow he imagines our desires to be intermediate between sin and us so that sin assumes the character of a king and our inordinate desires are the edicts and orders which are issued by his authority neither yield ye your members when sin has once fixed its kingdom in our mind all the parts of our body are immediately directed to yield it obedience 
Paul, therefore, in this passage, describes the kingdom of sin from its results, that he may point out in a more striking manner what steps we ought to take if we are desirous to cast off its yoke. The apostle, in calling our members instruments or arms, derives the simile from a military life, for as a soldier has his armour always in a state of readiness that he may be prepared to use it whenever his commander shall issue his orders, and never girds on his arms except at the nod of his general, so Christians ought to regard all their members as arms for a spiritual combat, and if any of them are abused in gratifying depraved inclinations, they are in the service of sin. Believers have also devoted themselves by their military oath to Christ and God, and are held bound to pay them obedience, and it becomes the pious to keep at a distance from all intercourse with the camp of sin. We may hence see what right those have to call themselves Christians with all the pomp of pride, whose every member is in a state of readiness, as if sold to the service of Satan, to commit all uncleanness with greediness. Paul now orders us, on the other hand, to stand entirely ready for the service of God, that, restraining our mind and inclination from wandering after any of those vices into which the desires of the flesh might lead us, we should keep our attention fixed on the will of God alone, be always ready to obey His commands, and in a state of preparation to observe His orders. Our members also should be prepared and consecrated to His will, so that all the faculties, both of our mind and body, should breathe after nothing but His glory. The reason is also added, because the Lord, having destroyed our former life, has created us for another, with which our actions ought to correspond. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then shall we sin, because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not, that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death, or of obedience unto righteousness? But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. For sin shall not have dominion over you. It is unnecessary for me to recite or refute expositions which have little or no appearance of truth. The interpretation which understands the expression to be under the law, to mean being subject to the letter of the law without the renewal of the mind, as to be under grace implies freedom from depraved desires by the spirit of grace, though it has the appearance of greater probability than other interpretations, does not meet my entire approbation. For if this sense of the passage be adopted, why does the apostle propose the question, shall we sin because we are not under the law? The very statement of the question proves Paul to have understood us to be so freed from the rigour of the law as to be no longer treated by God according to its utmost demands. He undoubtedly, therefore, wished to point out by this expression some deliverance from the bondage of the law of the Lord. I will briefly explain my own view of this passage, without entering into a controversial examination of the sentiments of other commentators. The Apostle seems to me, in the first place, to comfort and strengthen believers, lest they should faint in their zeal and desire after holiness, on account of the sense which they feel of their own weakness. He exhorts believers to exert all their faculties in performing obedience to the righteousness of the law. The remains of sin, however, must necessarily make them in part halt. To prevent their discouragement and despondency from a consciousness of infirmity, he affords them seasonable consolation from the consideration of their works not being now exacted according to the rigid demand of the law, but God, forgiving their impurity, accepts them in a kind, gracious, and indulgent manner. 
the yoke of the law cannot be borne without breaking or wearing down those who are subject to its power and on this account believers must fly to christ and implore his assistance as a defender of their liberty who is always ready to present himself in this character for the redeemer submitted himself unto the bondage of the law who was not on any other account a debtor to its demands that he might redeem those who were under the law as the apostle states galatians four five not to be under the law therefore means that it is not only prescribed to us as a dead letter when it condemns us as guilty because we have not power to obey it but also that we are no more subject to the law since it exacts a perfect righteousness and pronounces death against all who shall have swerved from any part of its demands under the word grace we likewise include both parts of redemption and mean the forgiveness of sins by which god imputes righteousness to us and also the sanctification of the spirit by which he reforms us to good works if we translate the passage because we are under grace therefore we are not under the law as the greek particle frequently allows to be done the sense will evidently be that the apostle wishes to afford comfort and prevent us from fainting in our zealous pursuit of good living because we still feel in ourselves many imperfections for notwithstanding the stings of sin continue to harass us yet they cannot bring us under their power because we are rendered superior to them by the spirit of god we are also freed from the rigid demands of the law when we are established in grace the apostle it must here be understood undoubtedly presupposes that all men destitute of the grace of god are bound by the yoke and held under the condemnation of the law we may therefore on the contrary infer that all while under the law are subject to the dominion of sin what then because fleshly wisdom is always railing against divine mysteries paul necessarily subjoins this anticipation of the objections of his opponent for as the law is the rule of a good life and given for moderating the affections and conduct of mankind we imagine if it is broken that all discipline will be immediately overthrown all bars and checks against iniquity be broken and all choice and distinction between good and evil annihilated the chief fallacy in this reasoning consists in our imagining the righteousness committed by god in the law to be abolished by its abrogation without considering that the precepts of the law as a rule of life are confirmed and ratified rather than abrogated by christ the proper solution of the objection consists in showing the curse of the law only to be taken away by the gospel and the whole race of mortals to be condemned by this unless the grace of christ intervene paul though he does not expressly state this points at it in an oblique manner god forbid know ye not this is not a mere expression as some have supposed of paul's rather detesting such a question than of his refuting it for the confutation of the objection immediately follows derived from the nature of contraries in the following sense there is so great a dissension between the yoke of christ and of sin that no one can endure both at the same time if we sin we give ourselves up to the bondage of sin but on the contrary believers are redeemed from the tyranny of sin to become the servants of christ and on this account it is impossible for them to remain the slaves of sin but it will be useful more carefully to examine the order taken by paul in investigating this argument to whom you obey the relative pronoun which is very common has the force of a causal particle as if it should be said a parricide is guilty of every crime by daring to commit the most dreadful wickedness and to perpetrate an act of cruelty at which even the very brute beasts shudder paul reasons partly from effects and partly from the nature of correlatives for in the first place he infers their servitude by their obedience for this cannot take place unless there is some person who has the authority of command by which obedience can be compelled 
this reasoning depends on the effects of slavery and hence it follows if you are slaves that dominion is on the other hand in the power of the master or of obedience if the apostle had intended the parts of the sentence mutually to correspond he would have said or of righteousness to life since however the sense of the passage is not injured by inverting the words he preferred by using obedience to express the idea of righteousness which by taking the cause for the effect denotes the very commands of god his using the word without an adjunct shows that god alone has power over the consciences of mankind for obedience is referred to god though the word is suppressed because it cannot be misunderstood or applied to any other object thanks be to god he now applies the simile to the case immediately before him by admonishing the believers in rome that they were not the slaves of sin and he adds also thanksgiving for the purpose of showing them in the first place that their deliverance from the power of sin does not arise from their own proper merit but the peculiar mercy of god and in the second place their gratitude to god shows how great a blessing the giver of all good had bestowed upon them while their detestation of sin was thus more powerfully excited in their minds he returns thanks on account of their deliverance from sin which had resulted from ceasing to follow the course of their former iniquity and has no respect to the period when they were the slaves of sin by tacitly comparing the former state of believers with their present paul emphatically attacks the calumniators of the grace of christ since he shows the whole human race to be led captive by sin when grace ceases to reign and the dominion of sin to be destroyed by the active operation of divine grace we are not therefore as a necessary consequence freed from the bondage of the law for the purpose of sinning since the law loses its authority where divine grace claims us as its own with a view to renew righteousness in us and our subjection to the power of sin cannot possibly take place because the grace of god reigns in our hearts for as we have already stated the spirit of regeneration is comprehended under the word grace ye have obeyed from the heart paul opposes the secret power of the spirit to the external letter of the law as if he had said christ forms our hearts in a more complete manner internally by his love than the law can compel us by its threatenings and terrors this removes the calumny of those who maintain the licentiousness of sinning to be introduced by christ freeing us from obedience to the law since he does not send forth his followers to indulge in unbridled wantonness and to exult without moderation and sobriety as horses when set at liberty gallop across the plains but conducts them in a lawful course and manner of life erasmus following the ancient translation adopts form while i use type the literal expression of paul some may perhaps prefer to translate it pattern for i consider the apostle to signify the express image of righteousness engraved on our heart by christ this corresponds to the precept and rule of the law according to which all our actions are to be formed and fashioned without turning aside to the right hand or the left being then made free from sin it is absurd for any one to remain in bondage after he has gained his liberty for he ought to maintain the state of freedom bestowed upon him nor is it consistent with the character of believers to be brought under the power of sin from which they have been emancipated by christ this argument is taken from the efficient cause and the following from the final you are delivered from the bondage of sin that you may enter the kingdom of righteousness on which account it is your bounden duty to forget all sin and to turn your whole heart and soul to righteousness under whose obedience you are now brought it must be observed that none can devote himself to the service of righteousness unless he has first been delivered by the power 
kindness and favour of God from the tyranny of sin, as Christ himself testifies. John 8.36 If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. What preparations, then, for divine grace shall we derive from the power of the freedom of the will, if the commencement of our goodness arises from that emancipation which the grace of God alone performs? I speak after the manner of men, because of the infirmity of your flesh, for as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. I speak after the manner of men. Paul means that he speaks after the manner of men with respect to form, not the subject matter, as Christ, John 3.12 says, If I have told you earthly things, when he is, however, discoursing on heavenly mysteries, but not with so much majesty as the dignity of the subject demanded, because he accommodated himself to the capacity of a rude, dull, and slow people. The apostle, by this preface, more fully proves the great wickedness and grossness of the calumny, which pretends and imagines a licentiousness to be granted for sinning by the liberty that Christ hath procured for his people. He at the same time also instructs believers that there is no greater absurdity, or rather dishonour and shame, than for the spiritual grace of Christ to be inferior to an earthly emancipation in its power over their conduct. As if the apostle had said, I could show by instituting a comparison between righteousness and sin, with how much greater vehemence and zeal you ought with all speed to enter the service of the former than to obey the latter. But I spare your infirmity and omit the adopting of such a plan. I may, however, showing you the utmost indulgence, justly demand of you not to practice righteousness, on any consideration, in a more cold or negligent manner than you have subjected yourselves to the dominion of sin. He means more than meets the ear, for he exhorts them to obey righteousness with so much greater earnestness as its dignity is much superior to that of sin, though his expressions do not seem to warrant the full extent of this sense. For as you have yielded, your wretched bondage and devotedness to the affections of your flesh was clearly apparent from the readiness with which all your limbs and members paid obedience to the power of sin. Let your alacrity and promptitude be equally striking in performing the commands of God. Nor let your activity in doing good actions be inferior to your former conduct in sinning. The Apostle does not, as in 1 Thessalonians 4.7, observe the order of the antithesis in opposing uncleanness to holiness, but the sense is evident. He considers in the first place two kinds of sins, uncleanness and iniquity. The former is opposed to chastity and holiness, the latter is considered in relation to injuries inflicted upon our neighbours. In the second place, he repeats the word iniquity twice in a different sense. In the former passage, it means pillage, frauds, perjuries, and injuries of every description. In the second, universal depravity and corruption of life and manners. As if he had said, you have prostituted your members to the commission of abandoned crimes, that the kingdom of iniquity might reign in you. I interpret righteousness to mean the law and rule of living righteously, the end of which is sanctification, that believers may indeed devote themselves entirely, purely, and simply to the service of God. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin, and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness, and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. For when ye were the servants, 
he repeats the disagreement already mentioned between the yoke of righteousness and sin which are so contrary in their character that whoever devotes himself to one must necessarily forsake the other his object is that by examining them separately we may more clearly see what is to be expected from both for a just distinction gives greater light in investigating the character of anything after carefully considering the difference between sin and righteousness he points to the consequences which may be expected to result from each the apostle it must be remembered argues from contraries in the following manner while you were the servants of sin you were free from righteousness but now on the other hand it is your duty to be the servants of righteousness because you are delivered from the yoke of sin he calls those free from righteousness who are under no restraint or check of obedience for the purpose of practising it since the licentiousness of the flesh so emancipates us from obedience to god that we become the slaves of the devil wretched therefore and cursed is that liberty which with an unbridled or rather furious violence exalts even to our ruin what fruit have you then paul could not express his meaning more forcibly than by appealing to their consciences to make them confess the shame which they felt in their character when out of christ for when the pious begin to be illuminated by the spirit of christ and the preaching of the gospel they condemn of their own accord the whole of their past life which they had spent out of christ and so far are they from endeavouring to excuse their past conduct that they are rather ashamed of themselves nay they constantly recall to mind the recollection of their disgrace that being thus ashamed they may be more sincerely readily and with heart and mind humbled before the lord nor does the apostle say whereof you are now ashamed without its use for he intimates the blindness of our self-love under which we suffered when we were so completely involved in the darkness of our sins as not to consider the extent of filth and uncleanness in which we were sunk the light of the lord alone can open our eyes to be able to behold the foulness concealed and lurking in our flesh whoever therefore has been taught to be dissatisfied with himself in real earnest and to be confounded with shame and bashfulness on account of his own wretchedness has been then only imbued and furnished with the first elements of christian philosophy at last he judges also more evidently from the consequence how much believers ought to be ashamed when they understand that they had been on the precipice of death and the brink of ruin nay had now actually entered the gates of death unless they had been drawn back by the mercy of god you have your fruit unto holiness as paul had before proved sin to terminate in two awful conclusions so he now shows righteousness to be productive of two most blessed results sin in the present life produces the torments of an evil conscience and afterwards eternal death we gather from righteousness the present fruit of holiness for we hope for eternal life in a future world these considerations if we are not altogether sunk in stupidity ought to produce in our minds a hatred and horror of sin and a love and earnest desire of righteousness i do not think with some that the apostle meant tribute for although death is truly the tribute we pay to sin yet it cannot be applied to the other member of the sentence for life cannot be said to be the tribute of holiness for the wages of sin some consider that paul wishes to heighten the unpleasant character of the wages given to sinners by comparing death to the food allotted to soldiers for the greek word is occasionally taken in this sense the apostle seems rather to make indirect allusion to the blind appetites of those who are allured to their own destruction by baits of sin as fishes by a hook it is a more simple sense to understand it for wages and death is certainly a reward merited by the reprobates it forms the conclusion and as it were epilogue of the last sentence 
nor does he repeat the same idea again in different words without a reason for he was desirous to render sin more detestable by doubling the terror with which it is accomplished but the gift of god some consider righteousness to be the subject and the gift of god the predicate in this proposition and translate it eternal life is the gift of god but this sense entirely destroys the antithesis sin as the apostle shows produces only death the gift of god by our justification and sanctification he now adds procures for us the happiness of eternal life as sin is the cause of death so righteousness the gift of christ restores eternal life to believers and it follows from this as a most certain conclusion that our salvation is wholly to be ascribed to the grace and mere kindness of god were this not true he might have said the wages of righteousness is eternal life making one member of the sentence to correspond with the other but he was fully satisfied that we obtain eternal life as a gift of god and not our own merit nor is this one simple gift for being clothed with the righteousness of the son we are reconciled to god and regenerated to holiness by the power of the spirit he added in christ jesus for the purpose of removing from our minds and hearts every opinion of our own peculiar and proper dignity end of section nine